Since Christmas, I've been spending many of my weekends up in Massachusetts cleaning out my dad's house. My siblings and I are in the process of selling it. It's a rambling old colonial crammed with things my family and their ancestors accumulated over the decades. There's my dad's model train layouts, his military history books, more power washers than any person needs, and boxes and cabinets filled with old documents. Most of these papers seem pretty mundane. Old tax returns, medical bills, St. Patrick's Day cards, things I have absolutely given up speculating why my dad didn't throw out sooner. But in one of my last cleanouts, at the bottom of an old metal filing cabinet, I found some yellowed papers labeled ARPANET. I took them back with me to New York, where I read them more closely with my producer, Josh. I think this is the one tucked in here. There are little edits of my dad's writing. So these must be the papers my dad had before he left, when he left the government. ARPANET Modernization Plan, 1981 to 1983. I found three documents, each a few dozen pages long. My dad's handwriting is scratched in red pen in the margins. What I'm gleaning from the writing is that basically by the 80s, look at this Beeser DARPA from the working group, October 1980. What I can glean from this is that by this point, we're dealing with technology that's really outdated. Yeah. And that doesn't work anymore. And then cost seems to be a big preoccupation. Lots of talk about money. These documents are from 1981, over a decade since the ARPANET began. Since then, new networks had been popping up across the world with new techniques and new hardware. My dad, according to these papers, was putting together a plan to bring the ARPANET up to date. I'll briefly read the introduction. This plan describes the actions necessary to provide an improved hardware and software foundation for supporting ARPANET service into the mid-80s. The main objectives of this modernization are as follows. Replace obsolescent nodal hardware with new easily maintained large-scale integration technology-based systems. Support the transition of ARPANET host software. Provide for support hosts which will interface between NCP and TCP mailbox message hosts support network access control improvements, phase out pluribus nodes, and replace with C30s. Most of this reads, as you'd imagine, government documents about computer technology would read. But what stands out to me is the reference to what we spent all of the last episode talking about, TCP IP. The internet protocols Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn invented. Part of the modernization plan was to switch the ARPANET over to using TCPIP exclusively. Vint Cerf helped push that switch to TCP along. So I called DCA and I told them, for one day, I want you to shut off the ability of the ARPANET to carry anything other than TCPIP. DCA, which Vint refers to, is the Defense Communications Agency that since 1975 was in charge of the ARPANET. My dad worked for DCA as network manager. That's how he came to work with Surf and Khan. And of course, as soon as I do that, all the people that are not running TCP IP, they're running the old NCP protocols, nothing works. Their email doesn't work, they can't log in remotely, they can't do file transfer, and they're all angry and my phone is ringing off the hook. What's the matter with you, you dumbass? Then I said, I just want you to know I can do that. And I watched the graph, you know, take off again. 
And then in October, it flattens out again. So I called DCA and I said, shut it off for two days. And of course, the phone rings off the hook. Uh, but by the end of 1982, all but two hosts have successfully got TCPIP up and running. A deadline for the switch to TCPIP was set January 1st, 1983. By the end of 1982, January 1, if you were not running TCPIP, we were throwing you off the network, specifically off the ARPANET. As a journalist who has worked on many New Year's Eves, I know there are a few things less popular than a January 1st deadline. But while Vince Cerf was getting flack for this date, there is actually someone else who deserves blame for this transition. Jake Feinler told me my dad was the one who set that date. I assumed she must have been mistaken since my dad left ARPA over a year before that deadline. But here it was, in my dad's papers. I called him to confirm. Hello? Oh, hi, Daddy. It's Christine. I just wanted to ask you, Jake Feinler said you were the person who picked the date for the TCPIP transfer of January 1st, 1983. Did you do that? Yeah, I did it. I was why, did you... why did I choose that date? Yep. Because it was the best one available at the time. I was looking around for dates, and that was the only, the best date I could find for, you know... Essentially, that was the date that we got. But then everyone had to work on New Year's Eve, right? Yeah. I forgot why I did that, but I did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It yeah, was, it, I pulled that it is. out of the air, essentially, and I did it. Yeah, okay. I, I had no other choice. That was the date. Setting aside the badly timed holiday deadline, this is a landmark moment in the history of the Internet. Many even consider January 1st, 1983 as the official moment to mark as the birth of the Internet. Or, as Surf calls it, That was the official flag day for the beginning of the Internet. And my dad was a part of that. But the real story is not that simple. At that moment in 1983, TCPIP was not the only Internetworking protocol gaining support. The Open Systems Interconnection Model out of Europe was vying with TCPIP to become the international standard. This would become known as the Protocol Wars, TCPIP versus OSI. And it divided our founding fathers in a civil war for the future of the internet. So how did TCPIP win? And why do some believe that the internet would be a better place today if it didn't? This is Computer Freaks from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Hani Dare-Bryan. Chapter five the Protocol Wars. The Protocol Wars didn't ultimately come to an end until the early 90s, just as the internet was set to explode with the release of the World Wide Web. Millions and millions more people across the world would start using the internet sending emails, and starting online businesses. 
But what standard would be the backbone behind this explosion was an open question. To understand how this war started, you need to go back to the same place we started last episode, just after the 1972 coming out ball. So in the early and mid-1970s, Cerf, Khan, Puzan, and many other international computing experts and networking experts were working together to try and come up with a consensus international protocol uh, for a transport protocol. That's Andrew Russell. He is a historian and the officer in charge of the SUNY Polytechnic Institute. He's written extensively about the history of technology, including the protocol wars. Andy took me back to a story I had heard from Bent Cerf about the International Network Working Group, or INWIG as it was called, and the problem of internetworking they were trying to solve. And the idea was for them to all come to an agreement and then to use this uh, standard protocol coming from computer people to push back against the monopoly control that was coming through not only the national telecom monopolies, but the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, is what we call it today. As we know, SURF was part of these conversations and then was approached by Khan to work on the command and control issue for ARPA. That led them to write the TCPIP protocols in 1973, which would later be presented to INWIG. So, with SURF and Khan's protocols, the international computer community had their solution, right? Not so fast. Their paths diverged in 1975 when this group called INWIG gathered for a vote. Actually, it was a vote by mail, and it took until 1976 to completely tabulate the results. They said, we need to choose between some competing proposals for a protocol that would be blessed as the INWIG standard. And the group decided to back a, a European protocol that was basically derived from Puzan and company's work at CICLAD. There was an attempt at internetworking, namely this implementation of a transport protocol between Puzan's CICLAD network and the English NPL network run by Donald Davies that was running in 1975 when these meetings were happening. It actually was operational as early as 1973, though it has been described to me as an experimental system and not a practical model at that point. So there was a vote to choose what path to follow, the American-led TCPIP or a collaboration with the European efforts. And uh, the vote was about two to one in terms of the ratios of support of that as opposed to support for TCP. At that point, Cerf and Khan, and my sense is that this was mostly Khan's thinking, decided that their obligations to their sponsor and their reason for pursuing TCPIP simply wasn't compatible with accepting someone else's protocol to finish the job that they were assigned to do. And so Surf and Khan essentially detached from that international effort while the remnants of that group, INWIG, went on to become the core of OSI later in the 1970s. Remember that Surf and Khan were working on behalf of the Department of Defense. And the U.S. isn't exactly known for falling in line behind its European allies. Their imperative wasn't necessarily to create an international standard. 
It was to connect the networks the U.S. needed for command and control. So this once united community was divided. So on the TCPIP side of things, it was mostly veterans of the ARPANET, led by Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn and a host of other people, including John Postel and, and many other famous names in internetworking lore. On the OSI side of things, they were people whose names have been mostly lost to history or forgotten. As things happen when you're on the losing side of a war, uh, your name isn't celebrated so much. Some of those names on the losing side include people we've already talked about, like Louis Poussin. Others we haven't even mentioned, like Hubert Zimmerman and Charles W. Bachman, who were two of the main architects of the OSI model. They will never get the same credit as Cerf and Khan for the simple fact that TCPIP won. But I can't help but wonder, what if the Department of Defense got it wrong? What if OSI was the better protocol? Some of our founding fathers believe it was. So what did you not like about TCPIP? What was your big concern about it? Well, first of all, why do you set up a group to come up with an international transport protocol if you're not going to go along with their results? That's John Day, who you heard from in the last episode. Day is an American computer scientist that worked on the ARPANET early in his career. But by the late 70s, he said he was pretty impressed with the design of OSI and its long-term potential. We had a compromise. We voted on the compromise. Okay, that was a melding of TCP and Cyclade TS. And everybody else said they'd adopt the compromise. ARPA was unwilling to compromise at all. It was either my way or the highway. But would we have been able to prevent any of the online harm issues we have? Would we have be able to have a different level of accountability? Would the internet that my children, that I am constantly trying to keep them off of and protected from be in any way different if OSI had prevailed? It could have been. It could have been. It would depend on where things went after OSI stopped. But OSI was a much more robust and well-formed. In fact, you know, you had a complete application naming structure in OSI, which you don't have in the internet. Instead of having applications all have to do it themselves and create more complexity, which of course means more chances that something's wrong, it would all fall out for, you know, essentially not much requirement at all. And actually I've, I've looked at the child thing, given where we've gone with stuff, yes, I, we could protect your kids a whole lot better. And why could you protect my kids a whole lot better? Because security falls out of the structure for free or nearly free. And I can create a layer that basically your kids can use that others can't get into. John's explanations of the differences between OSI and TCPIP are deeply technical. But what he is essentially saying is that OSI had a more substantial structure and could, in theory, support greater security. Of course, any assertion that the world would be better with OSI is entirely hypothetical. But still, I was curious. I asked Andy Russell the same question. I think we would have seen something that had a better architecture, a stronger architecture, certainly room for competition and, and innovation in a different sense, um, probably less of a free-for-all 
both in the sense of you know market capitalism as well as in the content that moves across the network. This notion of a permissionless internet is part and parcel of the TCP IP approach, where I think something a little bit more structured, a little bit less freewheeling would have resulted had OSI been the victor in the protocol wars. By permissionless, he means a model without constraints. Basically, anyone could use TCP IP and build new applications to run on this protocol. It had no copyright. It was lightweight and malleable. The emphasis that came out of TCP IP was just end-to-end connectivity. And then, you know, enhancements to it do that with some sense of reliability and, and so on and so forth and predictability. But it really moves stuff from A to B. That leaves a bunch of other details underspecified. And so that's the permissionless environment that I think was the source of so much entrepreneurship and innovation as well as some problems that clearly came in as the internet grew, whether it's security, uh, objectionable content, uh, illegal content, uh, those sorts of things. By contrast, a a system that uh, was more architected and more controlled wouldn't have taken off as quickly. So it might have been more of a challenge to get the type of and the scale of venture capital in there that we saw with the internet. But because of those controls and because of the sense of how is this whole system evolving as opposed to just one string that connects two pieces, that would have facilitated an environment that was more constrained. The idea of a permissionless internet seems antithetical to what the Department of Defense wanted. I asked my dad why ARPANET adopted TCPIP. He said that it was what everybody was using. He didn't say he thought it was best for the ARPANET, even though he set the date of when ARPANET would embrace the crossover entirely to TCPIP. As long as the ARPANET was the main player in the world of internetworking, the DOD could arguably keep the system closed. But the problem for DOD was that the ARPANET was no longer the only game in town. New networks were being started across the world, and more and more people wanted in on this technology. ARPANET desperately needed to modernize if it was going to keep up. That is, if they even wanted to be responsible for a national computer network anymore. More on that after the break. Computer Freaks is brought to you by Inc. Business Media. Inc. is here to support the American entrepreneur through its journalism, recognition programs like the Inc. 5000, live events like Inc. Founders House, and small peer-to-peer networking. We aim to inform, educate, and elevate the profile of our community, the risk-takers, the innovators, and the ultra-driven go-getters who create our future. For more essential journalism like Computer Freaks, Go to Inc.com and subscribe to Inc. Unlimited to experience the full offering of writing, video, and podcasts. So we have reached a point in the story where there are clearly winners and losers. The military was still in control. 
as it added more hosts and nodes through the 1970s. TCPIP won over OSI because so many people were using it to the point that the Department of Defense embraced it as well. Everybody wanted to get onto the ARPANET, but it was still a closed club. Here, Steve Crocker, who started out as a graduate student at UCLA and moved over to ARPA, which by then had added a D for defense to the beginning of its acronym. So now we get to the growth phase. The sites that were on the ARPANET all had to be paid for by DARPA. There wasn't any way for somebody to come with their own money and say, hey, I want to be part of the ARPANET. Remember, this wasn't a business to the DOD. It was a tool for military purposes. I actually fielded a call one day from a professor in Texas who I knew about, but he was not one of our contractors. But I was somewhat familiar with his work and the work of the people that he was associated with. He called me up one day and he said, we need to be on the ARPANET. I have the money. Where can I send it? And I said, well, I understand what you're asking for, and you guys are doing good work, and I'd love to have you on the ARPANET, but we do not have the mechanism available to do that. And I don't have enough money in my budget to pay for you to do that because it would have to be part of a larger research project, and you're not one of our current contractors. So that was certainly unhappy for him, but I also felt the unhappiness because it was clear he wanted to be part of the community and it would make a big difference. That was the heart of the fight at the time. The military was still in charge, but the nerds had a different view. Plenty of people seemed to agree with my dad's sentiment that the ARPANET should be for the military exclusively. Now, when you move over to, and I hope this isn't too sensitive personally for you, when you move over to DCA, that's populated with people who are coming from a very different culture, where the first instinct is, if you're not authorized, then get out of here. Whereas in the ARPA culture, in the culture that we were living in, it was, unless you're doing something egregious, everything's welcome. But there were plenty of cracks starting to show in the system. In a December 1st, 1981 letter I found among my dad's papers, he had been writing an article for a trade publication about the ARPANET's problems. In typewritten letters, it reads, outline for an article on ARPANET modernization. He typed in capital letters, the network has old age problems, which must be resolved. He identified problems with outdated hardware, node memory size limits, how new protocols were needed to send emails, which made up nearly half of the traffic, and how network access control was being circumvented. On page seven of his outline, he once again railed against computer freaks, calling out their cheap terminals who have, quote, used their dial-up TIP ports to gain network access, unquote. My dad makes it clear he knows the network is unclassified, but he still wants to prevent illegal resource use. And he didn't even work for the military anymore when he wrote this. And all of these people trying to engage in what my dad called illegal resource use were not just going to give up. There was more interest than ever in creating more networks, especially for researchers shut out of ARPANET. So the National Science Foundation, an independent federal agency, 
stepped into this void and gave the nerds what they wanted. One of the leaders of that movement was Dennis Jennings. In 83, ARPANET ran the internet protocols, but the number of users was very small and the number of universities connected, or rather computer science and engineering researchers in universities, was very small. Jennings was the first program director for networking at the Office of Advanced Scientific Computing. That office had been set up in early 1984 by the National Science Foundation to manage the $500 million Advanced Scientific Computing Program, which included these supercomputer centers. That agency was also tasked to set up a supercomputing network. Jennings had become well-known in European academic networking circles for his work on building a network for the Irish students and staff, as well as for his role on various university committees. So from 1985 to 1986, Jennings set up what became known as NSFNet. I argued when I took that role as the first program director for networking was that if the goal was to broaden the access to supercomputers throughout the research community, then the network should be available to everybody, not just the few hundred supercomputer users. So instead of building a network for those who already were supercomputing experts, I argued that we should build a general purpose network for research. And so that broadened the idea of networking to the whole academic community. And NSFNet became the U.S. National Research and Education Network. The NSFNet officially started in 1985. Like Dennis said, its purpose was to expand access to more and more academics. It was just bigger and better than the ARPANET. It was able to handle more users than the ARPANET. The problem with you are successful with networking is that you are successful with networking. That's Hans Werner Braun. Hans Werner started out working at a regional university computer network at the University of Cologne in West Germany, before moving over to the University of Michigan, where he helped develop NSFNet's backbone. What he is saying is that the ARPANET had such an impact that, even if the DoD wanted to, the network couldn't handle a mass expansion in users. So NSFNet had to be designed to pick up the slack. It was not more powerful, yeah, not more powerful politically, but more powerful technology-wise. And there was no longer the urgency to build the ARPANET to more academic institutions. That doesn't mean the military was being left behind. They too had their own plans for their own network. By 1984, there was a network called Milnet, which had split off from the ARPANET. But by 1985, the focus had gone on to Milnet. The DOD focus went on to Milnet to build an operational network for the military. So in a way, my dad's vision won out. Because there was a protected network for command and control that the computer freaks could no longer access. Here is Bob Kahn on this split. It was a decision. I mean, the ARPANET didn't do it by itself. I mean, it was a decision to do it. I mean, the military... Um, had decided from their thin-line experiments that this technology could work for them. They did not want to be using a network that had all kinds of university folks on it as well. If they were going to do it, they wanted it for the sole purpose of meeting defense needs. And the only way they were comfortable with that is if it was a 
split apart. Well, we had all the internet technology at that point, so we knew we could interface a separate defense version, which they called Milnet, with the rest of the ARPANET. Because it was at that time, the ARPANET was like 100 plus nodes. So like 40 or 60 went one place and the other 40 or 60 went somewhere else. And they had a link between them. But the way the linkage between them, it wasn't a full bidirectional link that uh, they would allow traffic from the Milnet to get out, but they wouldn't automatically traffic from ARPANET to get in. So there was like a, it's like a one-way diode between them that was... Workable. They could adjust it as necessary, but that was the basic rationale, and uh, that's what happened back then. But remember, my dad loved the ARPANET, like he loved all of his projects he has tinkered with for decades. And his beloved ARPANET was also shrinking in stature as NSFNet and other networks grew bigger. The ARPANET kind of became less and less relevant because of all the other things that were going on. Um, the NSFNet backbone, the regional networks, and there were a few commercial networks, TSINet, for example, which was kind of a hybrid, actually, between an NSF regional network and a commercial network. So they were starting to get very successful because even though the internet protocol was not what the government was, it worked very well and it was very successful. And the implementation, there was it was a public specification how to build it. So anyone could build equipment on the internet because there was nothing proprietary about it. It's actually to great credit to the Advanced Research Project Agency because they did not restrict knowledge about the protocols. Even though NSFNet and other networks were clearly eclipsing the ARPANET, Jennings did his best to keep the ARPANET alive. In hindsight, it's something he regrets. One of the early decisions that I agreed with, it was brokered by the National Science Foundation, by my boss in the National Science Foundation, was to spend $2 million a year in 85 and 86, expanding the ARPANET by 20 additional nodes. The decision was made to pass over money from the National Science Foundation to DOD because we thought that those 20 ARPANET nodes could be expanded fairly quickly. In fact, the DOD operated at a snail's pace, and that's being positive about the pace they act. And the last of those 20 nodes was installed in 1992, it was a disaster. It was the worst decision of my career. To encourage the expansion of the ARPANET. $4 million was spent over two years the ARPANET, and it was a waste of money. to admit, reporting out the decline and eventual demise of the ARPANET makes me kind of sad. It was birthed out of JCR Licklider's vision of an intergalactic network. It was first brought online at UCLA and SRI under the watch of Len Kleinrock in 1969. It was celebrated in Washington, D.C. in 1972. It is what my dad dedicated his life to from 1979 to 1981. The ARPANET changed the world. But that doesn't mean that the legacy of the ARPANET doesn't live on. Without it, Surf and Khan's TCPIP would have never happened. And as the ARPANET was dying, these protocols were being adopted more and more. 
In fact, it was winning the protocol wars. Jennings had NSFNet adopt TCPIP. The magic thing about the internet protocols was there was nobody enforcing them. It was entirely a choice to run them. But with that choice came advantages. If you ran the internet protocols, you could connect to any other computer or network running the internet protocols. You just have to observe a few technical details, get part of the global address space from a man called John Postel back then, and you're in, in. And so the motivation to adhere to those standards, those open standards that were the internet protocols, was simply self-interest. If I adhere to those standards, I can connect. If I don't, I can't. Simple choice. In the first half of this episode, John Day and Andy Russell talked about how the OSI protocols were, in their opinion, better. But that is just in theory. In practice, back in the 80s and early 90s, TCPIP was broadly operational. It could be adopted and implemented easily. There were no other protocols, OSI included, that were at that point, which was of particular concern for the technology companies that were starting up in Silicon Valley and across the country. And so commercial products, if you get into the mid to late 1980s, commercial products for internetworking that supported OSI, the whole OSI stack, were very slow to come to market. That's Andy Russell again. The specs were complex. They were difficult to engineer. They were at different phases of completeness or incompleteness, which if you imagine yourself as, a, as an executive or an entrepreneur trying to make a buck with networking equipment, this is not a scenario you would relish. On the other hand, TCPIP had been growing beyond the initial install base in the ARPANET into other government and then non-government networks. And the equipment makers have been following suit. The story ends with this is why Cisco became such a fabulously wealthy and successful company within a couple of decades, is because they started making multi-protocol routers and especially TCP IP routers. And this was in the mid to late 1980s. Cisco, if you aren't familiar, is now a global technology conglomerate that started in San Jose, California in 1984. It has more than 40,000 employees and a multi-billion dollar market cap. When it comes to marketing technology to consumers, the easier to understand, the better. It didn't have this elaborate architecture. It had a relatively simple set of tools and instructions to implement and customers, believe it or not, like this better, it was simpler, it was cheaper, it was easier to install, and it was a protocol that was working as opposed to waiting for a comprehensive stack that was promised to be coming out of OSI but was actually pretty slow in the making. The U.S. government had adopted TCPIP, NSF had adopted TCPIP, and the commercial world was following suit. Perhaps the final blow in the protocol wars came in 1992 in a speech at a meeting of the Internet Engineering Task Force. The speech was by David Clark, then of MIT and also chair of the Internet Architecture Board. So he had the title of Internet Architect, which is kind of a cool title. And uh, he had a long speech about Internet security and uh, the future of TCPIP. And at the end, he included this slide 
We reject King's presidents in voting. We believe in rough consensus and running code. There is no known recording of this speech, but by all accounts, the slide was met with thunderous applause. The rejection of King's presidents in voting is a thinly veiled swipe at OSI and their process for making standards. So the King's is a reference to old Europe. That was the perception of the rank and file for who was behind OSI. Presidents is, is a newer term, but it, of course, when one hears that, one thinks of, in part, of uh, political interference in the process. So again, for an engineer who just likes to kind of make things work, this is kind of antithetical to some engineering values, as arbitrary political authority. And voting, one would think, boy, you know, how could you be against voting? That's, <laughs> that's awfully dem anti-democratic. But again, from an engineering mindset, majority rules doesn't always mean that the best thing comes out. Also, remember that back in 1975, NWIG had voted against adopting TCPIP as the international standard. It was what set off the protocol wars in the first place. Clark's speech was so effective because he said, this is who we are. We're rough consensus in running code. We're not that political garbage that you see over there. And Vint Cerf also kind of added a sense of drama. I think it was at the same meeting in 1992. You should check when Cerf wears this trademark uh, three-piece suit. He still does to this day. And so he did a little uh, strip tease, if you can imagine a strip tease at a technical meeting of 700,000 engineers where underneath his three-piece suit, he had a shirt that was, um, I forget what it was now. It might've been IP over everything. It really made him a hero. The protocol war was over. The ARPANET has been decommissioned and the internet is soon to be accessible to nearly everyone with the launch of the World Wide Web. We may not have realized it at the time, but the world was on the precipice of unprecedented change. Guided by the virtue of rough consensus and running code, the 30 years that followed have been a blur of innovation and evolution. internet is real. Real money is being spent. How do you view that phenomenon that Amazon today is worth more than Sears? The investors are focused on the future. Amazon has growth potential that Sears doesn't. Ding, 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 ding. You've got mail. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. <laughs> How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. Chat GPT is poised to change the way we interact with computers and AI. Yeah. Goodbye. But this new world, as we all know, isn't the near utopia of J.C.R. Licklider's early vision of an intergalactic network. It's filled with harassment, 
misinformation, and worse. The internet is known just as much for the harm it has caused as it is for the innovation it has enabled. On our next and final episode of Computer Freaks, we will explore these unintended consequences and the digital world these founders left for their children and grandchildren. Computer Freaks is a production of Inc., created and hosted by myself, Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Our executive producer and editor is Josh Christensen. Associate producer is Sophie Codner. Music by James Jackman. Sound design and mixing by Nicholas Torres. Editorial oversight by Scott Emelianek and Stephanie Mehta. Computer Freaks is dedicated to my dad, Major Joseph Hani.